0: Think of creating a scalable and adaptable backbone for you to grow and evolve into. You need an infrastructure where you do not need to move your data. My data migration is not something which is cool. It takes a lot of time. It really delays the projects. So it's important to have that. And this data platform is adaptable to the changes in technology. So as technology evolves, you don't have to move it to a new platform to analyze it. So technology will change, the way we analyze will change, the algorithms will change, but you don't have to move your data. You need to think about a platform where you can put the data. That's the key for success.
1: Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Welcome to Data Futurology. Today, I'm sitting down with a very special guest. Her name Aruna Koluru. She's the Chief Technologist for AI at Dell Technologies. Aruna, how are you doing today?
0: I'm very good, Felipe. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for making the time. So Aruna, I was hoping you could kick us off by telling us about your your role and your remit at Dell. We can start there, please.
0: Sure. As you know, like you already mentioned, I'm Chief Technologist for AI in Dell. Uh, I'm part of a specialist pre-sales organization working on providing solutions for the customers. I work with organizations across APJ to help visualize the art of possible, defining the use cases, um, sharing uh, the use cases with the architects and building solutions with them with all the emerging technologies. So um, we don't see each solution as a separate silo like AI or IoT or data or anything. Like it's for get, To get to an outcome, you need all these technologies together. So um, we focus on all of them.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great. The different specialties come together to deliver Mm -hmm. the use case and and that it's a a use case first. That's fantastic. And are there any uh, particular industries that you work more in or, or less in?
0: Uh, no, but I think that's one of the challenging and the interesting parts of being in this role, right? Like we are talking to an agricultural uh, customer in the morning and then maybe a defense one in the afternoon and then a financial organization. So it's a range of things. And what we see is uh, technology can solve multiple problems. We learn from uh, different industries. At the same time, we see this use cases which can cross pollinate from one industry to other as well.
1: Excellent. Ah, That's great. Yeah, I'm very um yeah, I know that we'll jump into use cases uh, later in the discussion. I'm very, very keen. Um, first, I wanted to, to ask you about um, a trend that, that we're seeing in the market, and uh, we we get a lot of questions from the area for the from the audience about this. Um, and it's about the, the role of the data platforms in organizations today and how um, that the, the pressure has been increasing on the reliability of the data platforms, and they really have become uh, a core platform for the organization to run on a day-to-day basis um how how are you seeing that being experienced uh, throughout different industries um and and what impact do you see that happening uh, that having in businesses today
0: yeah you're right like there's an increasing pressure um, about the data platforms on the data leaders right like Uh, because data has become the core of innovation for every industry right like for improving efficiencies to customer experience or anything for that matter data is the key and there's quite a few challenges as data is not something you can go and buy from the market or it's uh, your data right? you've been collecting it for years together how do you actually make it accessible and bring out those outcomes from your data that's the biggest challenge
1: yeah, for sure. And and are there are there um, ways that you see that people are um, improving their their data platforms in different industries uh, or, or um, strengthening the process to create them? Anything around improving the the reliability?
0: Sure. Let's actually uh, talk about the challenges and then how they are fixing it. Right. Like um, so, in my experience, uh, most data analytics projects are viewed as technical initiatives, right? Without any alignment to the business objectives, that's where they fail. Mm-hmm. To align data and analytics to business priorities, business leaders must consider them more than just like a technology improvement projects. This will really ensure the data and analytics are set up um, to really solve and support their business goals and guarantees that they'll be able to produce meaningful insights from the data. And then um, we have data in silos business users often have difficult time finding and using data that exists in a variety of different formats and different locations without having a catalog or a way to really see what all data they have in one place. It's really hard, right? To create that, you need to have some kind of data-first strategy, right? Creating the transparency within the organization to see what data exists and how you really have to, how can you really re- utilize that um, data for different use cases. And standardizing this process will be uh, very good, right? How do you do that, right? Everyone has a different a way of doing it. And um, if I'm a data scientist in an organization or if I'm a, uh, someone, an analyst in an organization, I want to bring in some data, get some outcomes for my my project, and then so does hundred other uh, data scientists or analysts. Right? How do we actually have a standardized process to say this data is available, this is curated, um, this is the data lineage of the data, this is the quality of the data, the whole governance around that data, where it is coming from, where it leads to, and can we trust that data? Right? If we have all that in place, then it'll create that um, easy access for the data scientists to analyze this data. That's that's a, a very important part. And then uh, really investing in the analytical tools, right? Really investing in what analytical tools give you the best outcomes. Uh, not everything can be done from scratch um, um, using code, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. There are lots of analytical tools you can buy and uh, utilize them for no code um, ML or no code SQL or whatever it is, right? You can use those tools. And last but not the least is actually the skills. Um, skills from within the organization. How do you actually um, create that skill sets or um, create that culture to improve the skill sets within the organization so your employees or data scientists actually can keep up with all the new technologies coming out? It's this area is really evolving every day and it's a constant learning process.
1: Isn't it like the, the the pace of advancement is is huge? Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I love I love your your focus um, on on all of the different areas that that can uh, have an impact in in helping leaders strengthen their uh, their data platforms and definitely their data teams and the impact that they that they have. Um, I love that we're starting with the business uh, problem and the business understanding. Uh, That's that's outstanding. So I think a um, maybe a good a good follow up question is asking you about the the end to end delivery uh, for for projects. So how how do you see um, or what do you see as the best practices on um, putting those components that into to the work uh, to deliver initiatives in organizations?
0: It's a a great question. I think there's um, not a single uh, step, but there are a few steps. And again, like uh, uh, there are different, um, it, it can be slightly changing or varying for different organizations based on their own thing, right? But uh, in general, what I'm seeing is when it comes to the end to end delivery, um, first thing is actually get yourself comfortable with the AI, right? With the changes. We spoke about the technology changing every day. And you already said, um, let me come back, right? I always come back to the use cases, defining the use cases or even we can say identifying the challenges you want to solve with AI is very important. Mm-hmm. You can use examples from your peers of what they're doing or take inspiration from other industries or pick, pick up like a, your burning challenges, right? Then look for how AI can solve it. Um, do, do not do AI just because it's the coolest technology. It's always important to have business buy-in and involvement while identifying the use cases. I'm not sure of the order, but we need to consider, um, consolidate or even say, have a catalog of your data. So data scientists know what data is available for analysis. And then what I always say is it's important to have a data platform where you don't need to move your data, right? So data keeps on growing and data migration is the biggest challenge. So you need to have a way where you don't have to migrate to your data. Have a platform where you can just... Put in your data, catalog it so it's available for access all the time. And then once you identify the use cases, you need to think about the feasibility of the solutions. It's important um, uh, that to know that because it might be from the data sets you have, you might not have, um, you might have to collect the data from a few years before you actually want to analyze some seasonal trends or something like that. Right? You need. It's not uh, data. You, you can't um, just start in a click. You need to collect the data before you have, before you do anything. Or you might already be collecting it, right? Uh, you, or you might not have relevant skills um, to have the data accessible for analysis or even machine learning or deep learning skills. Identifying the gap in capabilities and prioritizing what you want to achieve is actually the key. And then... Do POCs, it's important to do a proof of concept, right? It'll give you a flavor of success as well as challenges we might face in real projects, whether it's um, in terms of the data or skills, or uh, it might not work, right? You might actually go and through that process of iteration again and again, till you go there. Uh, Like they say, um, fail early, This is an iterative process. So doing a POC is really good to identify some of those challenges and working on them. And then start small. Don't boil the ocean. There's plenty of things you can do with AI. Um, Pick something you get most value off with less effort. At the same time, do not build the small silos of the solutions. Now we have data silos, which we do not want to end up with, silos of solutions, uh, which are unmanageable for us down the line. So think of creating a scalable and adaptable backbone for you to grow and evolve into. You need an infrastructure where you do not need to move your data. My data migration is not something which is cool. It takes a lot of time. It really delays the projects. So it's important to have that. And this data platform is adaptable to the changes in technology. So, as technology evolves, you don't have to move it to a new platform to analyze it. So, technology will change, the way we analyze will change, the algorithms will change, but you don't have to move your data. You need to think about a platform where you can put the data. That's the key for success.
1: Yeah, I really like I really like that perspective of having the um, the data platforms as something that is um, you know that you can leverage over time. Over longer periods of time, and then uh, for it to enable multiple PLCs, so you're uh, constantly exploring and uh, bringing in that that innovation. Um, so, could you could you tell us a little bit more about the the two sides, or maybe what what people could expect or should expect from from a, a data platform where the data can reside for for a long time? Um, Maybe we'll do that first, and then I'll ask you about uh, what does a good POC look like. Maybe, but first on the on the data platform side, yeah, what what is uh, what is good look like um, on on the data platform side?
0: Yeah, so there's two different schools, right? Like one is having a consolidated data platform with all the data you have, so you can have a catalog and you can access it, and uh, it's accessible all the time. But again, the other school is actually, um, as the edge is growing, we can't bring all the data into a centralized data location. But as much as you're bringing, I think you should have that centralized data lake mm-hmm. um, where you can put all your data in. You don't have to move your data. You don't have to migrate your data. You have a catalog. So most often, right, uh, I, I take this example. Think about um, a traffic jam, right? We know that there is a traffic jam on a particular day every year. Right, we can just see that from the traffic data. But then if I want to really know why it is happening, I might actually have to include weather data. It might be raining on that day or the events data where there might be a um, concert happening on that day. So unless we consolidate multiple of these data sets, you can't really know why it has happened. So it's important to analyze across the data sets, not on one data set. So it's always important to have that centralized data lake, bring things together. Um, and analyze it to build the model or the historical patterns, to find the historical patterns. At the same time, uh, the age is growing and now we are talking about federated learning as well. Right? You have this um, data at the age, for whatever reason, right? Maybe the privacy or um, uh, the network bandwidth or whatever reasons, if you really want to, if you cannot bring the data, we actually have this federated landing platforms uh, where you can analyze the data at the edge or um, build a model at the edge, bring it back and build a global model, send the global model back, right? So, um, but this centralized data lake is crucial with all the data you already have, as we are evolving, things will change. But for now, I think um, the centralized data lake is very important.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, and I, uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned the data catalog as a, as a key component. There, mm-hmm. I, I I have to ask you more about it because it's it's critical. And I particularly wanted to ask you about um, how to ensure trust in the data that. Um, you know is available centrally and then hopefully is in the catalog um but sometimes we see data professionals wanting to and like i've been guilty of it myself as well many times oh, like you know wanting to to get the raw data available and then make it all ourselves and we yeah. ended up with this proliferation so i think it comes down to a problem of trust of the the quality in the preparation of the data that that is available um, mm-hmm. in the catalog. How how have you seen um, organizations or, or how do you advise organizations to um, to tackle that part?
0: Yeah, um, like I think all data um, or or analysts or all data scientists are um, guilty of that, right? Making copies of the data and analyzing it, uh, or changing a particular thing or deleting a particular thing and then making a copy. So one of the organizations I was working with, uh, they had, I think, 160 plus copies of the same data set. And um, they don't know if people were using them or if they're not using them, if people have left or it's the latest copy or they don't know anything of that sort. So It actually creates that hassle of um, not just the trust, but also the cost that builds up, right? 160 times the same copy. Um, instead of that, I actually feel like having a governed data process in place where you understand where the data is coming from, how it's being transformed, how it's being prepared, uh, what kind of transformations it went through and everything, and providing a single access to that copy for everyone to read, right? Like it's not um, uh, editable one, but people can read it. Um, That process is very important. More than the out like to get the to the outcomes more than the data science. The data is important, right? To get this process right, you need to have the data set strategy and have the transparency within the organization. Put the standards in place uh, on how you provide this data to the analysts um, so that they can analyze it and it's available to them when it is most needed.
1: Yeah, I really like that. I really like the the focus on on transparency. And that people can find um, and be able to see how the data was sourced and transformed, mm-hmm. um, and being able to look under the hood, you know, yeah. to get to get the um, to get the certainty that people are after. I really like that as a as as an approach. I think we could create a lot of a lot of increased trust um, and better and being able to leverage the work of of others in the organization. That's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I did want to come back and ask you about, about POCs and, and what, what does a good POC look like? And if you have any, any tips or, or, or criteria that people should, um, should think about when defining a POC uh, to, to obviously not to maximize uh, or maybe to maximize success, but the, the POC is inherently risky. Um, so what, what does a good POC look like from your perspective?
0: Uh, I think any POC is, is good, right? Like whether it's a success or a failure. But the most important thing for a POC is actually to define the success criteria. What do you want to really achieve? Once you have the success criteria, then you work towards that, right? Like what data do you need for it? Can you do it or not? Sometimes you might not have the data. Sometimes you might not have the skills. Sometimes you don't have um, access to multiple data sets. But defining that success criteria and then identifying the requirements for that is the important part, right? Like once we do that, I think really building that model is not very complex, but the first phase of uh, what we can do, what we can achieve is important. And along with that, um, this this particular POC, we always should have the business buy-in. I come back to that again and again, but we need to think about solving a simple problem Right. Don't don't really think like I want to make the most uh, of this POC, but like a simple problem where it actually shows business value. Have the business buy and tell them like, what, what do you need? And it's important to have a team of people here, right? Data science is a team sport. We need to get the business people, uh, the data scientists, the data engineers, all of them together. This particular POC is not just about technology, but it also tells you about what kind of team you need, what kind of diverse teams you need there uh, to build that success, right? Uh, The whole set of um, the end-to-end process, I would say, like how to get to -to end-to-end process and gives you that capability um, and uh, transparency, all these things which we are talking about, it actually gives you a taste of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love. Yeah, I love the the um, the comment there that it's a team sport. Definitely, definitely a team sport, um, and that you you need to to start with the the business buy-in uh, mm-hmm. to get engagement, and ideally to at the end get the impact uh, from what the technology can do by getting the business to adopt it and, and use it, or or to ask for it to be extended. Um, so that's that's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Another another topic that you that you mentioned was around the skills gap. Um, so I wanted to to see if we could dive into into talent and teams a little bit um, and get get your perspectives. Um, maybe a good place to start is that at the moment in in Australia, New Zealand, there's there's essentially a talent war for people in this space. Um, there's a, a, there's been increasing pressure for leaders to. Um, to retain the talent and attract top, top talent, um, what what do you what do you propose to to executives and leaders that are um, navigating these these um, you know treacherous waters at the moment when it comes to to talent and building teams?
0: Uh, this uh, is a very interesting question. I, this reminds me of a study I recently read in McKinsey, uh, which says that high performance are, high performers are four hundred percent more productive than the average ones. And in wow. complex op- occupations, like with where data science is one of them, high performers are 800% more productive than the average ones. Wow. So uh, I actually see all these AI occupations, right? Whether it's data scientists, data engineers, all of them fall in this um, complex op- occupation list. There's a huge demand, and ha- they're hard to retain for multiple reasons, right? Like one is, like you said, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of requirement. But at the same time, uh, from an organization perspective, I would say, build your own data teams within your organization. I see a lot of organizations hiring contractors, but it's highly recommended to build an in-house team, right? To understand, because they are the ones who understand your domain. They are the ones who understand your business. It's important to have someone within the organization. And then it's also important to have the right culture right? A purpose that's bigger than them, right? Most of these people who are in this complex um, occupations, they want to have that sense of achievement or sense of making a difference. For us at Dell, our mission statement actually driving human progress with technology resonates with us, right? And that creates us um, a sense of giving and achievement which is making like uh, making a difference in the world. So that's that's really important to create that culture. Um, and then uh I already select data science as a team sport, and most often, what happens is data scientist is brought in, and because they have to do a POC or they have to do a project, and then they don't have the data set ready, right? They are expected to deal with the data acquisition, data management, data governance, and many other things before they actually apply the machine learning or deep learning skills. Um, so, it, defining the roles is also very, very important, right? Like hiring the right skills at the right time. Uh, If you just get uh, some junior data scientists who cannot make the decision of what they have to do, they're quite good technically, but they might not be in a position to make a decision of which use case they can do is feasible, which use case is not feasible, right? Having that team um, of senior people and the junior people and the data scientists and the application engineers, right, who really... Uh, embed these models into their applications and the business all of these people and now we actually see the new ai officers all these people are really important to get um, get into the organization right the whole range of skills and giving them the right tools to work on it and one thing i would say is it's not true that the best teams are made of are made of only phd candidates right look for individuals who are curious about learning, who are passionate about learning. These technologies change every day. So we want someone who's curious and passionate rather than someone who is experienced in that, right? So it's a combination. We need experienced people as well in the team, but um, it doesn't have to be a complete PhD team. Um, Of course, they actually need to have the solid foundation on the basics, but it's good to actually get these people who are passionate and uh, ready to learn quickly on the changing trends and the new technologies all the time.
1: So true. So true. Yeah. Sometimes I I I see that data scientists and analysts um as, as to use as an analogy. Um, sometimes they're people who like the process of doing a puzzle, like yeah. putting together the puzzle pieces, uh, and they do the work because they love um solving puzzles. And then there's other profiles of people that love doing the puzzles because they want to look at the picture at the end yeah. of the puzzle and they want to analyze that and and, and look for things there. Um, and you definitely need a combination, a mix, a mix of of the different profiles um, in in the teams. That's,
0: That's an awesome, awesome. analogy. For me. Like it's I like that analogy. Right. Everyone has a different purpose, and they want to um, work towards that. Purpose and bringing them together and defining what they have to do is um, very key.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah, you need you need so many different di- and the different skill sets and diverse people uh, in in a data science team to be successful in these projects. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then so I was hoping that then we could jump into uh, some use cases. Um, so. Um, one one of the ones that that um, you've mentioned is around age AI and the the amount of uh, the amount of data that has been um, collected and and created at um, you know being dispersed in a, in a decentralized world. And obviously, as, as we move more into, um, into IoT spaces and, and digital twins and organizations that are making, making the moves where um, there's increased automation and the, the data needs to be captured and processed um, where, where the changes are being done in the physical world, um, what, what, type of, um, what type of use cases do you see coming up in, in that space?
0: Sure. Um, let's actually define the edge. Um, right? Deploying at the edge first before we go into the use cases. Yes, um, so I think it actually means that some of the aspects of the whole AI process, which we perform in a data center today, are being moved away from a centralized data center to somewhere very close to um, where the data is being generated or where the decision-making happens in the real world. So, Um, In terms of the use case, right, um, let's think about um, uh, a use case, which I thought would be very interesting um, when I was building this, when I was preparing for a talk uh, for the TinyML thing, right? So TinyML is, again, machine learning, which can be deployed onto microcontrollers, right, very small devices. And... When I was thinking about that, that can actually run on battery power. It doesn't need any network connectivity and it can actually run for days without any power or network or anything of that sorts. And I was thinking like, how can we actually embed this somewhere where we don't have any of these resources? That's when I thought like, we have this bushfires all the time in Australia. And if we can have some of these in the forest, and then they keep monitoring it, maybe it's just um, sound alarm or something, or they just p- keep pinging when there is network connectivity a little bit. And if multiple of them are going wrong, there's something wrong, right? Like they can, we can actually expand it, right? It's, it, it can go with the camera and it can watch and it can say, yes, there is a fire. When it is really small, fire or smoke or whatever it is or even conservation kind of a thing when it is small and then send that image or picture or whatever or even the video footage of it when there is a small fire. So the fire troops can go there and stop it before it becomes big and they also have an idea of the size of the fire from the pictures and they can go prepared for it. So this is actually one particular use case but then think about Anything in the real world, right? Right from uh, monitoring the crops in agriculture fields to um, monitoring um, cattle or um, chickens in the farms and then uh, um, predictive maintenance for um, uh, oil in, in oil rigs. I always think, when I think about IoT and AI, I always think about the Gulf of Mexico um, case, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the Gulf of Mexico spill where it went on like billions of dollars of loss along with the natural uh, um, hazards and other things as well. So there were 10 different stages where they could really avoided it, And right? If we had um, some sensors like cameras and um, temperature sensors and others, monitoring it all the time and giving um, additional kind of uh, decision-making skills in those kind of scenarios, Including like uh, really augmenting what humans do, we could have avoided that, right? There's plenty of use cases in that space, but um, I'm really fascinated about how we can bring all these to the tiny ML space as well.
1: I I'm so impressed with the the applications that you're thinking of, like the um, oh, pre- preventing fires and in oil rigs. That's that's fantastic. Um, Do you think that that are applications that we're um, say ready to productionize at the moment, or do you or do you see that there's um, some gaps in in the technology that could allow us to to create those?
0: I think um, technology-wise, there are no gaps. We can use it. Um, uh, like I say. It- if you want to do something, there might be a little bit more effort to put in a little bit of code or anything or some kind of adapter we have to write. But from technology wise, I think we are there. It's just the adoption, right? We need to, um, It's pers- I think it's perception. When we think of AI, like I said earlier, it, the perception is always like we need PhDs to do something. We need a very complex uh, code to go in to really do simple use cases. It's not true, right? We can actually get this simple use cases very, very quickly. And there are lots of um, frameworks in open source like TensorFlow or um, TensorFlow, PyTorch. All these frameworks are actually given as pre-models, right? The models are pre-built. And you don't have to write your algorithm everything from scratch. You can um, change it, of course. You you have to change it and um, do the tuning and other things. But you don't have to write everything from scratch. The frameworks are available, and then we also have pre-trained algorithms, right? For so something simple, right? Like Think about um, uh, crowd counting, for okay. so counting the number of people. There's plenty of use cases. You can use it to really see how um, how a particular road is being used, or how a particular building is being used, whether it's in schools or shopping malls or airports, or how long the queue is. How can we actually um, uh, support, like, or provide services for the? number of people waiting in the queue? How many people do you need to serve the pe- that number of people? There are plenty of use cases, but again, this particular algorithm is already there and it's been pre-trained, so you can deploy it onto the edge and just uh, use it. I, I'm not saying all use cases are like that, but there are use cases where you can actually just deploy use it. That's where we need to start, where I said we need to start with, um, with the easy use cases where we get a lot of value, and then move on to the complex ones as, something like um, um, theft detection, right? Like it's again, depending on your uh, behavior and there's lots of solutions for that as well. And um, it's quite feasible. From a technology perspective, there's no gap. It's just the adoption and the perception.
1: Great, great. That should be very inspirational to the people listening uh, that, you know, there's this wide array of problems that can be solved with the technology that exists today. And it's about the the execution and putting... um, Putting our minds to um, to bringing together the right parts of the technology to make that change. So that's that's exciting. Um, I wanted to ask you, with AI being such a such a big space and obviously growing so quickly, are there any particular areas, or are there any areas that you're particularly passionate about? Any anything that that just really gets you excited within within AI? Um, that yeah, that might, might have a, a place close to your heart or something that you're passionate about.
0: Yeah, there are quite a few of them. right There's so much happening in the space. And uh, like I mentioned, tiny ML is one of them, how we bring all this to the edge. And then federated learning, uh, how do we actually learn at the edge without really bringing the data together into one centralized location? Um, and then um, we have um, graph neural networks. which really give you that capability to bring those connections and everything out together um, from the data. And then we also have uh, the quantum AI, right, which is really exciting as well, how we are changing the way we use algorithms for security or, um, yeah, primarily the security thing will really change when uh, quantum becomes big. Um, I've seen 2026 as the year where quantum will be, um, proliferating everywhere but by the time like we need to be ready with the security algorithms and everything and the safety for the governments quantum AI is going to be big there as well so there are plenty of um, uh, avenues in here things are changing every day and it's a very exciting space
1: yeah that is fantastic um and for for the um the people that might um I'll ask you more about federated learning uh first so for the people that that might see it as a um, insurmountable task like what what do you well, what what do you recommend to them like what are the the ways to get uh started in federated learning and i ask i ask because in i guess more traditional data science training the the um the the training of models the creation of models is always is always centralized um mm. and typically then models are done in an offline or, or at least um um they're released in an offline manner that they make their their inferences in an offline world Um, while in the federated you've got almost the opposite where it's uh, distributed and they need to be learning in an online manner so i I assume that they need to be sort of self-improving and self-learning um to the um but from your side what do you see as the the ways that people uh, can get into federated learning um and and some of the challenges that that Uh, they should be prepared for?
0: Sure. Um, The first thing, again, like the data, it comes back to the data, right? Uh, Data has to be in a way that we can be accessible and the right data sets so we can actually um, analyze it in a federated way. But at the same time, I think um, we have the frameworks, like I said earlier, um, just like we have framework for uh, centralized learning. We have frameworks for uh, federated as well. There's TensorFlow federated, and we have a product called Analytics Anywhere, right? So what I've seen there is actually a real tool, um, like a kind of a no-code tool as well, where you drag and drop, and say these are the different nodes, and how you actually create that and everything. So there are abstractions coming on the complexity for the federated as well. And uh, look for the vendors now, right? Like it's it's not something as simple as the uh, centralized one. So the distributed one gets a little bit more complex. So the look for the tools in the market, which actually have those abstractions to minimize the complexity and start there. And then you can go deeper into um, changing the algorithms themselves uh, completely by yourself.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and what about, what about the the, the graph um, revolution, or I guess, um, now graph machine learning and, and things like that what what areas does that open up uh, for for the industry uh, in terms of applications or, or use cases that, that could be particularly well suited to uh, to graph technologies what what do you see that people should be thinking about applying that technology um, where, where should that technology be applied
0: so, so graph, um Uh, let's actually come back to the basics of the graph, right? Like how the data is stored itself. We have these graph databases where the data is stored in a graph format. Um, I always give this analogy saying that it's more like a murder board where you actually put your pictures and pins and those threads around where you can pull them to see the connections between the data. The data itself is actually stored in that format. So graph databases give you that capability to Um, store the data in that format. And then when it comes to the use cases, plenty of them. Like again, if you want to know, uh the products recommended products for you right uh, how are you connected to different people what are the similar people you have in a traditional world it's hard to really find those connections but with graphs it, it really opens up that whole new world of finding connections whether it's for recommendation engines finding um fraud in transactions or anti-money laundering all these different use cases open up with graphs
1: that's great that's great. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Especially, yeah, in, in um, I can see the applicability in areas such as healthcare or yeah. where the, the complexity is huge and the recommendations are critical. Um, so that's that's awesome, Aruna. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your insights and your perspectives. It feels like you live you live uh, and you can see the future. So it's it's uh, tremendously exciting to um to get to be able to share your perspective. So thank you so much for taking the time today.
0: Thank you so much, Felipe, for having me. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's an honor to be on this show.
1: That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you thanks again and see you next time